For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This just in, the world is a messed up place. Now, that's true universally, globally and historically. But of course, events over the past several weeks have made this all the more acute. We think of the shooting in Nashville where Christians were specifically targeted by a militant, mentally ill transgenderist. We can think also of events going on in Washington State and in California, proposed legislation that would grant a tyrannical state the ability to snatch children away from parents and mutilate them despite their parents' desires. It's no surprise that these two same states are the most eager to disarm their citizens. Gee, I wonder why. The world is a disastrous place. We Christians, while we are here in this world, have a duty to fight against it with whatever powers are right and just and good. While we fight this penultimate fight, we must nonetheless not lose sight of the ultimate victory. In just the brief section of John's first epistle to the church, we see not once but three times he talks about overcoming the world. Not making friends with the world. Not learning how to be winsome enough that the world finally accepts the Christian message. Not going out into the world as if the world could simply be made right by our own efforts, be they religious or be they political. The world is to be overcome. And it is overcome in the ultimate sense in only this way, by faith in the one who overcomes it. Christ, by way of his cross, overcomes the world with all of its temptations to sin, with all of its pull toward sickness, toward disorder, toward chaos, toward death. The Lord overcomes this world with all its powers on the cross. Becoming sin for us, he destroys the power of sin and sets it aside forever. By dying to death, he destroys the power of death forever. And so the church, in her great wisdom, sets before us these three texts that though we are in the second Sunday of Easter, quasi modo geniti, 
though we are in this great season of recognizing the resurrection of Jesus, that doesn't mean that we leave his cross in the rearview mirror. In fact, quite the opposite. When Jesus shows himself to his disciples in the upper room, the very first thing he does after appearing in their midst is he shows them his hands and his side. Not hands absent nail marks or side absent of a spear mark because that would maybe suggest victory. No. Hands with the nail marks, side with the spear mark, intact. Because it is by those wounds that he has overcome the world. And it is by those very same wounds that he then speaks peace. An absolution to all of his disciples then and now. A forgiveness of sins that flows full and complete from those very wounds. Granting us the victory over sin and death. Granting us to receive his word by faith and thus overcome the world. John sets before us a threefold witness to this truth. According to Scripture, everything must be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. And John's point is precisely this. If you would listen to two or three human witnesses, then surely you will also listen all the more to the threefold witness of God himself. What is this threefold witness? It is the threefold witness of the Spirit, the water, and the blood. The Spirit is obvious to us. That is the witness of the Holy Spirit via the Word of God. But what is this water and blood? It is indeed the waters of holy baptism that bear witness to you that God is washing away your sins. God is granting you a new life in Christ. And it is likewise the blood that flows to us from Christ to the chalice. And in that chalice, you have the blood of the very New Testament itself, the forgiveness of sins and life eternal. What John writes here in his epistle is all the more clear when we compare it to what he writes in his gospel. You'll remember that of the 12, John was the only disciple to be an eyewitness at the foot of the cross of Jesus' death. And there, John testifies to us two very, or three very unique things. The first place, Jesus, upon his death, hands over his spirit. Very frequently, English translations read, he gave up his spirit, or he gave up the ghost. We might just as easily say, well, he kicked the bucket. That is not what John is saying. 
John is using the technical Greek language that becomes technical Latin language that becomes the word tradition in English. Christ hands over, hands down, that spirit which he received in the waters of holy baptism, now he bestows it upon those at the foot of his cross. You can see then the connection with our gospel text in the upper room. He shows them those wounds of the cross, breathes on them with the Holy Spirit, and then gives them the keys to forgive and retain sins. But back to the cross. As John sees it, Jesus hands over his spirit in his death. And moments later, when the Roman soldier pierces our Lord's side, John says that water and blood flow forth. Not watery blood, not bloody water, but water and blood. So that from the cross of Jesus, one sees the Holy Spirit given. One sees blood and water pouring forth from his side. These are three witnesses that testify to you, plural, and to you individually, that he has done it. That your sins, no matter how great, no matter how ugly, no matter how repetitive, no matter how shameful, have been lost like a drop of water in the ocean of his forgiveness and love. The scriptures in Easter season plant the cross of Jesus in our midst. And there is every reason for that. Indeed, we can see John himself playing with these themes. Do you recall that when God originally made Adam of the dust, he formed him, and then he breathed into him the breath of life, and the man of dust became a living being. But on account of his sin, dust you are, to dust you shall return. Now, after Christ has put away sin, we see him making a new creation, breathing not merely the breath of life, but the breath of the very Holy Spirit, making not merely living men, living dust, but making spiritual men who will soon inherit spiritual and eternal bodies as this, immortal, as this mortal must put on immortality. Likewise, if we go back to the original creation, we see the Garden of Eden set in the center of the cosmos. But in the center of that center, in the very midst and middle of the Garden of Eden, is a tree. A tree that God removes. The very tree of life. And now he sets into our midst the tree of life once more. But it is clothed and hidden to your eyes, to your reason. 
will look like a tree of death. For the very tree of life is that tree of the cross. And it can only be received by faith. By sight, by reason, it looks like death. But by that tree, we live. And by partaking of the fruit that hangs from that tree, the very body and blood of Christ, which looks to our eyes and to our reason to be the very worst of all foods, by eating this fruit, we live and live for all eternity. The new creation and the forgiveness of sins are the very same foundation. Where there is forgiveness of sin, there is new creation. Where there is new creation, there is forgiveness of sins. And this new creation means a new you. As the Father testifies to you by the water, the blood, and the Spirit. As He breathes into you the Holy Spirit. As He sets before you the very tree of life in His Son. That by believing in this threefold testimony of God, that by believing in the Son of God, that by faith in Him and faith alone, we will indeed overcome the world. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.